Okay, 2 Samuel. So the next seven weeks, we're going to be in 2 Samuel. Um, we're going to take a little break in there for Pentecost Sunday, one of those seven Sundays. Um, but um, I want to give you a heads up, particularly to Student Transitions parents, um, that we're headed into some heavy stuff. Um, marriage, broken marriage, marital infidelity, um, sex, um, murder, um, treachery on pretty much every level, um, uh, drunken manipulation, all kinds of good stuff. Um, it's all in the Bible. Um, we're going to go at it. We're going to look at it. It's there for a reason. Um, and I don't give that to you, parents particularly of kids, as a warning, but as a heads up so you can begin to think through some of this stuff. Maybe you want to read ahead with your kids um, before a particular Sunday. We're going to be going through, like today we'll be in chapter 11 in Second Samuel. Next week we'll be in chapter 12. Um, the next week after that, we're actually going to be in a psalm, but the week after that, we'll be in chapter 13. So we're going to get up to chapter, I think, chapter 15 over the next seven weeks. Um, so, you know, read ahead or, or engage it with your kids ahead of time um, if you would like. But I just wanted to kind of give you that, that heads up so you can engage this with your kids in, in a deeper way. So um, there may, maybe there won't be the confusion that maybe they would have um, because they're going to ask you questions when I'm done preaching. So you need to be ready for it. DJ is going to have... Um, his uh, 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 student transitions question guide that he puts together each week that he'll get out to you, and that'll be part of it too. But just so you guys can engage this most fully as families, particularly, I just wanted to let you know that. So today we're going to begin um, in 2 Samuel 11 with the story of David and Bathsheba. It's a story we know pretty well. Um, but first, before I do that, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to get uh, just a brief life summary of David up to this point. Let's pray. Jesus, um, thank you for your word. Thank you for the whole counsel of your word. Um, and Jesus, thank you that we can see you in it. That you don't just show up on the scene um, in the book of Matthew. Um, and you're not just kind of mentioned in different places in the Old Testament. Like, you're, you're there. Like, you were, you were there at the beginning of time. You are the word. You are the alpha and the omega. And, uh, and so, Jesus, we celebrate um, the fullness of who you are in our scripture. And we thank you, God, that we can engage it together as a family. And as we engage this story today, I pray that we would hear the story. We'd hear the story that's being told, but we'd also connect with your story, God, and, and connect it to our story. And, and there's so many ways we can relate to, to David. Um, there's so many ways we connect to, to his struggle, to his victories, to his ups and to his downs. Um, Lord, help us connect it to your son, Jesus as he battles through suffering. And God, you call us to suffer as well for the sake of your glory. And so let us receive the fullness of your word today. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So up until now, David's life, real quick. So David is the youngest son, but David um, gains favor at a young age and ends up in King Saul's court, kind of as an, uh, an assistant to King Saul. Um, then this young shepherd boy, David, after gaining that favor, really storms onto the scene when he uh, kills Goliath, uh, which is a story that our kids did, I think, last Sunday upstairs. Um, so David is really making a name for himself at this point. He's not trying to. He's just being faithful to who God is and who he knows God to be in his life. So David kills Goliath, of course, gets a ton of attention. Um, David, after that, gets more favor within Saul's court, and he becomes a... Uh, a well-recognized young warrior for Saul, and he eventually takes command of Saul's um, fighting men of war. 
Um, he gets anointed to become the next king while Saul is still king. That's awkward. But David walks in it with just a tremendous amount of humility and grace. Um, he didn't ask for it. He just received it and walked in it. And, um, and Saul, of course, becomes very jealous, and he's chasing David all over the Judean countryside. And David has these chances to kill him, and probably rightfully so, but he refuses to kill the king's anointed. So David just walks in a ton of humility. So he's the anointed king, and he's hiding in caves, and he's getting spears thrown at him, and all of these things that you don't think of for a guy that's anointed to become king. But David walks in a ton of integrity through all of it. And then when Saul dies, instead of celebrating Saul's death, which is just what we all would have done because Saul made David's life a living hell, David mourns Saul's death truly as his king. He mourns his death, and he writes this, this beautiful um, song um, just grieving the loss of his king and, and letting all the people know all the good things that Saul did for his people. Um, so he honors Saul even in his death. Then uh, more recently, we looked at David moving the ark to Jerusalem. And he uh, celebrates freely in his worship as he does that. And then we see David um, going to battle and defeating the enemies of the Israelites that were still in the land. Um, something that Saul was supposed to have done but didn't do. So David goes to battle. He cleanses the land. And uh, he brings the, for the most part, cleanses the land. We're going to see a little bit of what's going on today with some other battles going on. But, um, but then he, he brings this peace to the kingdom. He brings this peace to the kingdom. Um, he honors Meshibapheth, Mephibosheth, which is Saul's crippled grandson. Typically, you kill all the family members remaining from the previous th uh, king. But instead of killing them, he seeks out, hey, who's still alive? And it turns out he has this, this uh, grandson. Saul has this grandson who is, is crippled. And uh, David honors him. Um, he allows him to be a part of his, his king, and he eats at David's table. So just all this amazing stuff. And David, um, he exhibits just a tremendous amount of honor and grace and love towards God, God's people, God's enemies. Um, he's just an all-around kind of great guy. You know, he's the captain of the football team, all that, right? And, and he stays connected to his father in some deep ways. Um, one thing I didn't mention is that Barry's going to do some reading for me during the sermon just so I can, like, talk as little as possible. Okay, I just want to make sure nobody's going to cheer when I said that. Good, good. You passed past. So, Barry, if you want to come on up, um, Barry's going to just read some scripture at different times. And the scriptures Barry's going to read now are just a bunch of passages through First and Second Samuel to just reflect how much God was, or how much David stayed connected to his father and how he loved God and sought God and how that relationship was so deep and so real. 1 Samuel 22.3 Later David went to Mizpah in Moab where he asked the king, Please allow my father and mother to live here with you until I know what God is going to do for me. 1 Samuel 23.10-11 then David prayed, O Lord God of Israel, I have heard that Saul is planning to come and destroy Kilah because I am here. Will the leaders of Kilah betray me to him? And will Saul actually come as I have heard? O Lord God of Israel, please tell me. And the Lord said, He will come. 1 Samuel twenty three sixteen. Jonathan went to find David and encouraged him to stay strong in his faith in God. 1 Samuel 36. David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters, and they began to talk of stoning him. But David found strength in the Lord his God. 
2 Samuel 5.10, And David became more and more powerful, because the Lord God of heaven's armies was with him. 2 Samuel 7.22-28, How great you are, O sovereign Lord! There is no one like you. We have never even heard of another God like you. What other nation on earth is like your people Israel? What other nation, O God, have you redeemed from slavery to be your own people? You made a great name for yourself when you redeemed your people from Egypt. You performed awesome miracles and drove out the nations and gods that stood in their way. You made Israel your very own people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, I am your servant. Do as you you have promised concerning me and my family. Confirm it as a promise that will last forever, and may your name be honored forever so that everyone will say, The Lord of heaven's armies is God over Israel, and may the house of your servant David continue before you forever. O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, I have been bold enough to pray this prayer to you because you have revealed all this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings, for you are God, O sovereign Lord. Your words are truth, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Second Samuel 9, 3. The king then asked him, Is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, Yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. 2 Samuel 10, 12. Be courageous. Let us fight bravely for for our people and the cities of our God. May the Lord's will be done. Um, So you can hear, that's just a survey, just from 1 Samuel through 2 Samuel, of just uh, David's obvious, obvious love and connection to his father and the father's love for David. So just prior to entering 2 Samuel chapter 11, the, the nation of Israel is at a relative place of peace. They have a king who loves God, a good, a good king. Um, things are calming down. Rest is coming upon the people. Peace is coming upon the people. And then things go really, really bad, really, really fast. Um, First and second Samuel are littered with these references of David's connection to his father. And then we get to chapter 11, and David's connection with his father is non-existent. It's empty. God is not in chapter 11. At least he's not in it with David. David doesn't gradually, um, or it doesn't appear so, at least from what we know, make this gradual backsliding motion um, over time where people go, oh, David... You know, hey, you should watch yourself. We've noticed some of your behavior. It's like all of a sudden, David jumps off a cliff, and he hits, like, every tree branch sticking out and every jut rock sticking out along the way. And that's that's the kind of fall that David goes into in chapter 11. So let's, um, let's read chapter 11, Barry. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. 
And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messenger, Report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, Why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? Then tell him, Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said, and as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Barry and I were joking this morning that he's, he's my Aaron this morning. So he will lift my arms up. Thanks, Perry. Um, So there's the story. So verse 1, it's the springtime in the Middle East when kings normally go off to war. Um, The problem is David wasn't going off to war. The The opening salvos of this chapter tell you that something is really, really wrong. Um, the springtime is when the kings would go off to war at this time because uh, the rainy season is over. They would get snow in that part of the country a little bit sometime, or that part of the world at times. So if there was any snow, the snow would be melted. The rain, the major rains are done, so the roads aren't mushy, so they can, their armies can travel through. Um, the, uh, the vegetation is growing up, so there's a lot for the animals to eat, you know, their horses and all the animals that they take with them. Um, So this is when you go to war at this time. 
Um, and David is, first and foremost, a military leader. So this is where he is to be. He is to be at war. And right now, his people are warring with the Ammonites. Um, they had retreated in chapter 10 because Israel, Israel came against them pretty hard. But the battle is not over. And so spring, um, the seasons change and things happen and the rainy season comes and they put things on hold. And it's now time to go back and finish off the Ammonites and continue to cleanse the land as God had told them to. But David didn't go. And even worse is that David, well, David sends Joab, and he's thinking, the king, eh, Joab can handle this. The Ammonites, they're pretty much defeated at this point. Joab, you go. And then it says David gets up from his nap in verse 2. And we all love a midday rest, don't we? Yes, right? We all love, is, is it just me that likes to take a nap? Really? Who's going to take a nap today? It's Sunday afternoon. Raise your hand. Yes, Joy Courtright. Thank you. Naomi, thank you. I will try to if I can sneak one in um, without being in, getting in trouble for it. But uh, yes, we all love a rest when it's okay to take a rest. This is not the time for David to take a rest. His men are out on the battlefield sleeping in tents on the hard ground. Their king is supposed to be with them because he's their leader. And he's back at his palace, just waking up from his midday rest. And then he decides he wants to go for a walk. Where does he go for a walk? He goes for a walk on his palace roof. How nice. His house is big enough that he can walk on the roof. How many of us have that kind of house? No. <laughs> I see some hands in the back, right. Um, he's, what a, what a great day this is. Huge house, nice walk, nice rest, looking out over the kingdom. Um, probably at that point, his palace would have been the high point in the city. So great view. He's the king. This is his. It's his kingdom he's looking at, right? But there's so many things. There's so many things wrong with this picture, and it just keeps getting worse for David. So he spies this woman bathing on a rooftop somewhere, and uh, he's interested in what he sees. And so he inquires of his people, right? We all wish we had people that we could send out to inquire of things, um, do our shopping for us. Um, maybe you think you are that person in your house. I don't know. Um, but I'll let you guys work that out. Um, and so he sends his people out to inquire, who, who is this beautiful woman? And it comes back, oh, that's, that's Bathsheba. That's uh, Uriah's wife and Eliam's daughter. Oh, well, um, I'd like her to come. I'd like to, to talk with her. Talk with her, what, you know, whatever. David wants to be with her. David wants to have sex with her. This is purely a physical, I see a beautiful woman, that's what I want, and that's what I'm going to take. Now listen to this. Like, when, he, when word came back about who this woman was and who her dad was and who her husband is, David knows these people. Uriah is one of his 30 great fighting men that it talks about later in 2 Samuel chapter 23, I think. Her dad was also one of these men, um, Eliam. So her family would have been well known to David. 
as a military leader. His um, advisor, who we will meet in a couple chapters, is her grandfather. And assuming that David knew this man was before he became his advisor, usually advisors are coming out of our inner circle, David doesn't care that this is who this woman is. He's going to get what he wants. He doesn't care that these men serve him, that they're currently serving him in battle while he's walking around on his palace roof ogling at his wife, at his daughter. So he calls for Bathsheba to come. Um, He could care less about betraying these men. So he calls, and um, you can see the fall. It's hard and it's fast. Like, he, he doesn't, he doesn't care at this point. So Bathsheba comes, and his one goal is to conquer her body, and that's what this is about, to, to utilize his power as king. And we don't know how complicit Bathsheba was in David's sin, but you typically don't say no to a king. Um, you remember a story about a banquet in Matthew. Um, it's a parable where the king invites um, the townsfolk and his friends to come to this wedding feast of his son, and they don't come. So he mobilizes his army and just burns the town and kills everybody, right? You don't say no to a king. Now, David was a, a good king, but he's the king. So I would have to say that Bathsheba probably didn't have much choice in, in the matter. Her husband's not around. He's out to war. Consider this. David, at this point, we know, had at least seven other wives and at least ten concubines at his disposal, so to speak. The concubines were there pretty much for his physical pleasure. Um, His wives, more or less, for the same thing. But none of that is enough for David. None of that's enough. This is the one he wants now at this time. This is the one he wants now. Not the other 17 over here that he could have still, God is not happy with this thing of 17 happening over here. God's not happy with that. But, but it exists. And David could have continued to lead well if that's what he chose to engage at that point. One of the 17. But no, he chooses the one over here. The wife, the daughter, of the men who fight for him because that's what he wants. So that's what he gets. That's what he gets. David abused his power, taking what was not his for the sake of his own pleasure. David was a man who up to this point had stewarded his authority, his God-given authority, with tremendous honor, just honoring God, pointing to God. You heard it. Barry read all those passages. Um, it's like we're experiencing a different human being at this point. Now, certainly, I'm sure there's, oh, David is not perfect, was not perfect leading up to this. There's things going on internally in David that, that we're not aware of. But to the most outside observers, including us, we're going, what is going on, David? Who, who are you? You're not the person that I thought I knew. You're not the leader. You're not the king. You're not the man. You're not the warrior that I thought you were. What is going on? And we've all heard stories like this, maybe deep personal stories, stories that are close to us about people like this 
who we know or we think we know, and then we find out that they've just fallen so hard, so fast. And it's like we didn't even know them. And we think things like, is, is there any hope for them? And we want to hold out hope. Is there any hope for their victims? Um, yeah, we believe in the cross and we believe in redemption and all that stuff, but geez, I don't know. This situation seems like it's kind of beyond that because I, I don't know if that person, well, if they did that, I don't think that they were going to want redemption. And we kind of think those kinds of thoughts and we kind of watch it from a distance and we just grieve and we're sad. And that's what we do with David. Um, Redemption seems so far removed from situations like this, like David's, like situations that maybe you're thinking in your head right now. Um, Redemption can seem so far removed, so impossible. There's another man in the story, um, Uriah. So while David is falling hard, Uriah is standing strong. He's like the, uh, you know, the antithesis. Um, um, I'm trying to think of a literary word here to David. Olivia, what's the word I'm looking for? That's what you're thinking? Cool. Well, if I was thinking the same thing Olivia was, then that must be the right word. Um, Antipod, perhaps. Um, But anyway, so here comes Uriah. So not only does David take what he wants, just abusing his power and betraying friends and men who are putting their lives on the line for David at that time, But he calls in Uriah to try to cover up this whole thing because Bathsheba's pregnant, right? And we know David's the father because she was bathing because she had just finished her menstrual cycle and was bathing as a ceremonial washing of having just completed her menstrual cycle. So Uriah was away when all that happened. So David's the guy. He's daddy. David knows it. He doesn't try to fight Bathsheba in it. He doesn't say, well, hey, maybe it's some other guy that you slept with. No, David knows. He knows what's going on. And Bathsheba's like, look, you need to know. You're the dad. So David has to figure out what to do. So the sin just continues to spin out of control. So he has Uriah called off the battlefield, and he comes to the palace to speak with David, and David, you know, small talks him for a little bit, you know, how are things out there, great, okay, good, you know, how's the fighting going, oh, fighting's going pretty good, you know, everything's good, good, hey, great, why don't you go sleep with your wife, uh, no, I, I couldn't do that, I mean, could we blame Uriah, no, he's been away from his wife, right, he gets called, and she obviously lives close by, David could see him, see her from the palace rooftop, so David, David tries to manipulate him into that situation, he doesn't say it outright, but he invites him to go hang out with his wife. Hey, Amen. Men here who are married, if you're away from your wife for three weeks and you see her for the first time and you're excited, I mean, I don't know what you're going to do, but I know what I want to do. I want to be connected with my wife. I want to experience deep intimacy. I want to, not just physically, but I want to I reconnect. Here's Uriah. He's, he's, he's in, the, in, the, in battle. You know, he doesn't know if he's going to come home. But Uriah doesn't take the bait. Uriah goes and he sleeps with the palace guard at the palace gate. Because he says in verse 9, 
He says, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away so long? Uriah replied, the ark and the enemies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. I'm sorry. The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab and my master's men, oh, that's you, David, my master's men are camping in the open, open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. So David's like, oh, man, okay. Right, he doesn't go for it. I thought that would be an easy one. All right, let's do this again. So he tries again the next night. This time he gets Uriah drunk. So Uriah's got some weaknesses here too, okay? So Uriah gets drunk. David suggests the same thing. Uriah does the same thing. He goes and sleeps with the palace guard. So David doesn't know what to do. So, right, so it's just kind of getting worse and worse. How am I going to cover up this sin? What if people find out that Bathsheba's pregnant by me, that that's my child? Oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? He's probably thinking he's going to lose his kingdom. He's going to go out of fa- fall out of favor with God. Duh, God knows everything that's going on right now, David. He knows. So at this point, David plans to just cover up the sin by murdering Uriah. So we've got marital infidelity. We've got sexual sin. We've got deception with Uriah. And now he's plotting to murder Uriah to cover up his sin. Um, So, you know, he sends Uriah back to the battlefield, gets word to Joab, make sure that Uriah gets on the front line where the uh, fighting is fiercest so that he has a really good chance of dying. So Joab's a smart guy. Like, Joab knows there's a game going on here. He's going to play politically. Joab's a real political guy. He's going to try to gain from this what he can. What upper hand can I gain from David? So Joab, Joab goes with it. And so uh, they go back to um, the battle, and this is the Ammonites in the city of Rabbah. And here, now they've, they've, the city is being sieged. So um, the Israelites have the upper hand, right? The city is under siege. It's under control. Everything's good. They're kind of just choking the life out of these people slowly, right? But there's not as much fighting as there needs to be to kill Joab so, or to kill Uriah. So Joab pushes them further and further closer to the city wall. And that's where, you know, the folks from the Ammonites are still protected by their city wall. And they're kind of lobbing things over the wall, shooting arrows, right? And, which is just insane that that tactic would be used by Joab. Because why would you put your army in danger when you don't even need to? You're winning. It's, everything's good. But he knows he has a task to get done. So he pushes the army up against, uh, a certain part of the army up against the wall, and Uriah dies, and others die, right? Others die. Others who are married, others who have parents, others who probably have kids, right? But that's what Joab needed to do to get the job done, right? David didn't know it was going to take all that, that there was going to be that much carnage, probably, but that was the nature of the battle that they were in. So he sends, he sends word back to David with this, hey, this is what happened. This is what, this is what you probably wouldn't have expected. And oh, by the way, Uriah is dead. So you're probably cool with everything that I just said. So innocent people are dying. People have lost fathers. People have lost husbands. People have lost children. Because David was trying to cover his sin. And many of these people would have no reason to believe 
that their child, their husband, their family member died because the king was trying to cover the abuse of his power. So um, it's really twisted because Joab and David have this exchange of messages back and forth that they're kind of like using code language. It's like we're all kind of listening in and we don't know what they're talking about. Um, So the messenger, verse 22, the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, and as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. This is just, makes you sick. Tell Joab not to be discouraged. This is what he tells the messenger. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Hey, that's just how it goes. That's battle. That's brutal battle in this time of human history. You just never know what's going to happen. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. And David puts his robe back on and heads back into the palace. I I added that, but I thought that was dramatically. (laughs) If it were on the stage, that's what it would look like. David doesn't care. He just said... I don't care, in so many words. All he was doing was manipulating the messenger to let Joab know, it's all good. I know some other people died. I know you didn't use normal battle tactics, but you got the job done. It's all good. Take the city. Fight harder. Choke them out. So the messenger takes the message back to Joab. And then Bathsheba mourns her loss. I'm guessing Bathsheba probably knew what was going on to some degree when she heard that her husband died. Um, a great warrior in David's army, one of his 30 great warriors. Why did, why did he die at the city wall during a siege? That just doesn't make much sense. Oh, that's right, I'm pregnant with David's kid, and Uriah is my husband, and David has a lot of power. and Yeah, so she's caught in the middle of this really, really crazy situation. So she mourns, and it seems that her mourning is legit. Like, she lost her husband, who she loved. And from what we know, he seems like a great guy. In fact, the name Uriah means uh, God is my light. And Uriah walked that way. God's name is in the name of Uriah. Um, The Hebrew, it's in his name. So, um... David does the only honorable thing that's left, which doesn't seem that honorable given the circumstances. And he marries Bathsheba. She becomes wife number eight. That must feel so intimate and special to her. Um, I would think, um, oh, you're married because your husband just got killed. And this other guy is the father. And you're number eight. And she knows how David treated the other, numbers, the other seven because He came after her instead of gone to them. So now she's just a number in David's harem. Um, Earlier on, Barry read a bunch of examples in 1 and 2 Samuel where David goes after God and where God is involved in David's work as a leader and as a king and as a son, but not in 2 Samuel. We don't see David's connection to the Father at all in 2 Samuel. We We see God showing up in two places. One, is when Uriah mentions him, when he says, I can't go out there and sleep with my wife. I can't go home. When your men and the men that I fight with and God are housed in tents, what? So Uriah is honoring God in that place as well in his choice. 
So Uriah mentions him. And then at the end of the chapter, um, the very last half of a verse, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. And you get this picture of like David um, and his, his life and his sin and, and the manipulation and the murder and the treachery and all this stuff. And God is just, just standing off to the side, just like watching it all and just, just grieving, just desiring so much for David to just invite him into the mess that he's made. But David thinks he can control it because David's in charge, right? He's a king. He's a leader. He's got the skills. He'll figure it out himself. He knows God, but why would he invite God into this mess? This is no place for God. And God just stands off to the side and grieves, and he's displeased with what David had done. And it's interesting that that language, it didn't say he's displeased with David. He still loves David. He's displeased with the things that David had done, which certainly are closely connected to David in his heart. But there's still room for David. There's still a chance for David to come out of this. There's still hope. But God is not happy with this scene. He is not happy. God loves David, but he's very unhappy with the thing David has done. What is the thing? He stayed in Jerusalem. That was the first step. He stayed in Jerusalem when he should have been out at Rabbah, helping lay siege to the city for the Ammonites. He abused his power for the purpose of just fleeting pleasure. Then he tries to cover over this sin by first manipulating a great warrior in his army. And when that doesn't work, he murders this great warrior in his army. And then he covers up the murder. David, up to this point, was a man whose heart was captured by God. We talked about that last week in Psalm 16. How can this be the same person? Um, Lustful desires have taken David from the deepest point of connection that he had with his father up to this point of us knowing David to the lowest point and the furthest that he's been from his father in, in less than a chapter. In less than a chapter. This is sad. It's deeply sad, but it's also reality. We must be so careful that the enemy does not get this kind of foothold in our lives. David clearly had a weakness. Um, We all have those kinds of weaknesses. We know people who have fallen because the enemy got to a place, even if it's just a little fingernail that the enemy got hanging on there. That's all the enemy needs sometimes, and he just gradually gets more of himself there, and he gets two fingers and three fingers and a hand and two hands, and then he pulls himself up and gets his knee up there, and then, and then he's there, right? The enemy wants to kill. He wants to steal. He wants to destroy. All of us. All of us. Not just the weak people among us, not just the leaders who are so spiritually gifted that it couldn't possibly happen to them, even though it happens all the time. The enemy wants to kill us. The enemy wanted to kill David. And David was willing to be a player in that game. He was okay with it. 
there's various points along this story. And, and this didn't happen. I mean, ev- eventually when we get to, to chapter 12, we're going to see that, you know, this child is born. So this plays out over the course of, about, you know, at least nine months that this sin is being, is being uh, uh, um, drawn out, teased out. This wasn't like, um, whoa, all of a sudden this thing happened, and whoa, I just did a really bad thing really quick, and oh, uh, okay, now what do I do? Uh, okay, God, please forgive me. I don't know what I was thinking. Wow, the enemy almost had me there. No, like David did make a really bad choice, and then he just, he just let it go. And it led to deception and murder and misuse of his army and all of these things that David used to stand for. David fell hard and he fell fast, but then he just went with it. He just went with it. The enemy wants that so bad. I mean, you know, when you see things about pastors or Christian leaders or this church or that church, the world loves that stuff. They eat it up. They eat it up. And the enemy laughs his way all the way home when that happens because he wants the church to be put under that kind of shame. He wants Christians within the church to be put under that kind of shame. So he will go after us people. He goes hard. And whatever seed he planted in David that kept him from going off to battle that day, whatever that seed was, oh, David, you're a great king. Take a break. Look at all the enemies you've defeated. I mean, the Ammonites are almost defeated. Why? You don't need to go out there. Send Joab. He's a capable leader. You, you know how to hire capable leaders. Joab's completely capable. It'll affirm Joab and his leadership, and Joab needs affirmed. Let Joab do it. You, you, you've done enough. Look at the landscape of your life, David. Look at what you've done. Take a break. Take a break from this siege. David says, okay. And then we know the rest of the story. That's all the enemy needed. Maybe David's big weakness was laziness. We don't see that in his life, but maybe, maybe that's what it was. David, take a break. Stay home and take a nap. Whatever it was and however the enemy did it, he did it and he did it good. Thing is, as we know, there's more to this story. Um, we're not going to get to it today. We're going to get to it, most of it, next week, which is exciting. There's anticipation that we can come in that. David was a man after God's own heart. And he sinned big. And the enemy came after him hard. And the enemy got his way. And the enemy comes after us hard. And sometimes the enemy gets his way. And sometimes we fall hard fast. And sometimes people around us fall hard and fast. But there is still hope in redemption. There is still hope in redemption. And it doesn't come because David's a great role model for us. He is. David's a great guy. We can look at David. Look at David's words. Look how he went after God. Look at his heart towards God. He loved God. He's a man after God's own heart. But David can't save us. David can't save us. Whenever we look at the life of David, one question we always have to ask is, where's Jesus in this? Where, where is Jesus in this? And so, yes, look at David. Be encouraged by who David is. Not in this chapter, but in other places. Be encouraged by who David is. Read his psalms. Be encouraged by the words of encouragement and hope and honesty and just his rawness that he comes out, that he, he cries out to God and he doesn't understand things. And it teaches us that it's okay for us to cry out to God and ask questions of things we don't understand. David's a real. But he always goes back to the Father and he always points to the Father. But he doesn't save us 
And David certainly didn't save himself in this passage. As hard as he tried to make his situation right, he did not save himself. David is a human being. Um, go ahead and flip your bulletins to the back. And can I borrow somebody's bulletin? Does anybody have a bulletin that I can just read off of real quick? Yeah, Brian, there's Karen. Awesome, thank you. Go ahead and flip your bowl into the back. I want to read Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in the nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the seas, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. Okay? Like, th- this is what David, David's life points towards. That day, when the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world, the nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. And of course, you can hear the Jesus that they're talking about in this passage. So yes, David was a great man, and he was on this throne in this lineage, but it was leading to somebody much greater. And Isaiah talks about it years and years before it happened. He said, there is one coming in the line of David's throne that will be a banner of salvation. Who will save? Who can save somebody who gets themselves into a mess as bad as David did and worse? Who saves us from secret sins that nobody knows about? Who saves us from ourself? Who saves us from our enemy? There is hope for redemption. There's hope for redemption for David. There's hope for redemption for you. There's hope for redemption for me, no matter how bad it is. I mean, that's the whole point of the cross. If there isn't that hope, if there's a line that there's salvation for some things, but then when you cross that line, you've got to work really hard to bring the barrier down so then Jesus can save you, then that's garbage. That's not the cross. That's not God's love. Is that kind of redemption, is it hard? Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah. Because people are going to know about this stuff, right? People are going to know. And we're going to find out in chapter 12, all of a sudden David's stuff came out. But he was able to go after that hope and that redemption because he, he was able to turn and fall on his knees and look at the cross and admit what was wrong 
and receive forgiveness from a father who he knew loved him because that father had been in his life up until this point. So it's all there. It's all there for us. It was all there for David. Um, Jesus knew the temptation of sin just as David did. His response was, was quite different. Um, go ahead and flip to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No. The Scripture says, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Next the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. Sound familiar? I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away. And the angels came and took care of Jesus. I, I think that the scene was pretty similar to when the devil showed up to tempt, to tempt David. He shows up to try to get a foothold in Jesus' life to bring him down because he wanted to kill Jesus. He wanted him dead on his terms. And Jesus did die, but on the Father's terms. He wanted him dead just as much as he wanted David dead. And David fell, and he fell hard. But then he turned and looked and remembered who his God was. And Jesus, Jesus was tempted, and he felt the same thing, right? He felt the same thing, but he's so grounded in his father that there wasn't even a chance that Jesus was going to go down that road. Not even a chance. Check this out. Jesus, can we get that chart up, Gene, please? So Jesus was in the right place. He was led by who? By the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil, right? He was with the Spirit. He was where he was supposed to be. David was in the wrong place. He was supposed to be out to war, but he was on his palace, in his palace. Jesus was fasting, so he's at a weak point. He's at his weakness so that the Father's presence would be magnified in his life. David, on the other hand, took his God-given kingly powers and used them to harm others so that he could gain for himself. So Jesus starts in Matthew 4 from a position of weakness. A position of weakness so that God, his Father, would be glorified. David, on the other hand, starts from a position of strength. I don't need to be at war. I'm a king. I do what I want. Take a nap, walk around, take that woman, murder that guy. But he ends up weak. And Jesus ends up strong. Jesus is incredibly hungry. He's fasting. And the first thing that the devil offers him is, hey, use your power. You've got plenty of power. David had plenty of power. Turn these stones into bread. And Jesus rebukes him. As much as I'm sure Jesus would have loved to bite into a nice sweet piece of bread. Right? David also hungered. He hungered for Bathsheba, and he went right for it. Nothing got in his way. Nothing. 
He went right for it. Jesus was taken to a high point in Jerusalem where he was tempted to jump so that it would be proven that his father would save him. He responded in verse 7 saying, the scripture also say you must not test the Lord your God. You must not test the Lord your God. David, at the prompting of the enemy, worked really hard to save himself from his sin, manipulating Uriah, killing Uriah. Jesus knew where his safety rested. David tried to create his own safety net around himself. Again, they're on the high place, this time on a mountain. Jesus was tempted to worship the devil so that he would be given the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says in verse 10, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. David's on the high point, the highest point, on the palace roof, and the enemy shows up and says, David, this is all yours. Worship yourself. Take that because it's yours. Kill that because you own it. And he does. And he does. He worshiped himself. Jesus knew who to worship. And then finally, at the end of the passage in Matthew, Jesus is, he's with the presence, in the presence of heavenlies. He's in the heavenlies. He's being cared for. Where's David at the end of his passage? Second Samuel, he's alone. He's outside of God's favor. He's got political distance from Joab. He's got a new wife who is probably just like, what in the world happened to me over the past nine months? David's got a lot of people around him, but he's alone in a crowd. Just thought of that, Justin. Jesus, uh, he's alone. David is alone in a crowd. There is hope. There is hope, and the hope is in Jesus. The hope is squarely in Jesus. Jesus, you, um, you set the standard. You set the bar. You are so whole, so complete, pure, righteous, magnificent. God, you put yourself in that place to be tempted, not to give us an example of how to avoid temptation, but you endure that temptation as a human so that you could go to the cross pure and holy and spotless and blameless so that you can die for our temptation, for our sin, for the things that have wrecked our lives, the things that we've chosen to wreck our lives, the things that we've allowed the enemy to come in and have a foothold and just live in that place so he can kill us. But you said no. You said no, I will not have that. I will subject myself to the same thing that you will and I will come through connected to my Father so that I can then go suffer on the cross for you so that you can live pure and spotless and holy. Jesus, you are so good. You are so good. And we take this time to worship you and lift you up. In your name we pray. Amen. So uh, next Sunday, we get the rest of the story, and it's a story of, of great hope for us and for David, maybe for people we know that we just are broken and grieving for. Um,
And so um, for our benediction this morning, uh, our prayer benediction, I want us to, I want it to be a benediction of preparation to prepare our hearts this week for receiving the kind of redemption that David was able to receive um, from the Lord following what happened in this chapter. And so, uh, so that's what this time is, is to receive that from the Lord, that in places that if there have been just hardness for you or hardness for someone you know, to receive the cross, to receive the full blessing of what God endured, what Jesus endured temptation for, to go to that cross for us. Like, it, it's, it's for us. And then for us to point back and say, look how good my God is, because look at where I was, and look how good my God is. So let's receive this blessing together. Jesus, you are pure and spotless. You endured it all for us. You endured it all for David, so that it was possible, but only possible, that he could be saved from himself. And it's only possible that we can be saved from our sin. It's only possible. We have to receive the good gift of your death, your life, and your resurrection to experience the fullness of what that is. And there's a lot of us that we just don't want to receive the fullness because we did the bad thing, and so we want to figure out how to fix the bad thing. And it's a really bad thing, and Jesus, certainly your blood isn't red enough to cover that sin. Certainly the pain you experienced wasn't enough to cover my sin. But that's just a bunch of lies from the enemy who wants to have that foothold in our hearts and in our lives and in our bodies and in our minds and in our spirits. It's just lies. And so God, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, and prepare our spirits this week to receive the fullness of your life. God, keep us in prayer for people around us who we know who maybe are in a situation like David. And we don't see much hope there, and neither do they. But there is, because of the cross, because you endured. God, help us where we don't see that as a reality, because we're too bad, or that person's too bad. God, let us see through your eyes. So give us your perspective, Lord, to receive what it is you have when it comes to forgiveness so that we can just point back to you and say, my God is really, really, really good. So Jesus, we pray all this in your name. Amen.